Let's pray together. Father, some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. Yes, we do. We will place our hope in you, God, because you are our salvation. Remind us again, remind us again in your word tonight where our hope truly is found. It's found in you. It's found in Christ. Father, I just pray that you would allow your spirit to be um, especially working tonight through the word of God in our hearts and that you would do what you can only do and go deep down into the recesses of our souls and show us the things that we need to know, show us the things that we need to submit to, show us the things we need to repent of. Father, we just open up our hearts for you and we ask that you would help us to know what we need to know and change what you need to change. God, we need you because we place our hope in you. So Father, we pray this and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's get our Bibles open. Acts chapter 27. We're actually going to go through a whole chapter, uh, a whole chapter together in Acts chapter 27. Brenda and I are glad to be here with you this weekend and thankful to the Lord that we can be here to, to minister together and also for me to be able to minister from the word to, um, this weekend. Hope is one of the most important and fragile things in our lives. When you've got it, it can carry you through the roughest waters of life. And when you don't, you can feel like you are like absolutely lost in the sea of life. Now, most of us, when we think of this word hope, we think of something like it's wishful thinking. Like, I hope this happens, but I'm not certain that it actually will happen. That's how most people think of the word hope. Or when you use the word hope, usually you're thinking it to describe somebody's kind of outlook in life, that they're a, a hopeful person. And when you say that, you mean they are have like more of a sunny disposition, or they're more optimistic than they are realistic, or they're a more glass half full person than they are glass half empty person, or as Winnie the Pooh might say, they're more Tigger than Eeyore, right? That's usually when we think of the term hope, we usually think of it as it's, oh, that's wishful thinking, or we usually use it to describe someone's disposition. But the biblical idea of hope is very, very different than the way that we use the word hope. The biblical definition for hope could be this. It's the confident desire and expectation for something good in the future, right? It's the confident desire and the expectation for something that is good in the future. Now, you and I both know this to be true. There are times in our lives when, and there are events that happen in our lives that test our confident desire and our confident expectation for something good in the future. Right? There are always things that are happening in our lives, and sometimes there are big things that happen to our lives that actually test our confidence in God like that, that we would have that kind of hope, a confident desire and a confident expectation for something 
good in the future. There are these circumstances of life that sometimes happen that make us think that the situation that we are in is actually hopeless. And Acts chapter 27 is like one of those chapters. As we work our way through this chapter, you're thinking, wow, where's the hope? I mean, it doesn't, just doesn't seem like there's any hope. And so tonight, this weekend, I want to kind of show you in Acts chapter 27, one of these times when life looks like it is hopeless, I'm going to give you three points and one truth. Okay, three points and one truth. Here's the first point. It's this. When all seems hopeless, when all seems hopeless, look at chapter 27, let's read verses 1 through 3. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius and embarking in a ship of Adramatium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and to be cared for. Now the context of this story is the Apostle Paul, is he's done his missionary journeys now. All three of them are done. They're finished now. And he is now um, just gone through his um, court case and they decided that he really wasn't guilty of anything, but because he had appealed to go to Julius Caesar, they actually had to make sure that he made his way to Rome. And so this is all the backdrop before what's happening here in Acts chapter 27, verse 1. And when it says, when it was decided, that means that there was some time had actually passed from the end of chapter 26 now to here in chapter 27, verse 1. Finally, Paul is going to go to Rome. He's finally getting to go to Rome. And so they take the Apostle Paul with some other prisoners and put them on a boat. Now, these other prisoners are others of a different kind. In other words, Paul, we already know Paul's not a criminal. He's been accused of something that he's really not guilty of. He's really not your everyday criminal, but the rest of them are. And so here he is, the Apostle Paul, really not guilty of anything, on a ship about to go to Rome to see, hopefully to see Caesar. And there's the rest of them who are guilty of all the kind of these things that they had that they had committed. And and there's this man named Aristarchus with him on the boat. And we are introduced to Aristarchus in chapter 19, verse 29, who he is a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. I don't know if you know this or not, but the prisoners, when they got on these ships and they were being sent by the state to go to uh, you know, a court case or a prison or whatever, they actually had to pay for their food and pay for their, they had to pay for everything. Like the state didn't pay for anything. It's not, not, like, it's not like today. Back then they'd have to pay for everything. And so occasionally you would find that on these ships that were going with these prisoners, were actually friends of prisoners that would go with them because they had to provide meals for them. They had to provide goods for them. They had to provide different kinds of things for him. And that's, what, that's who Aristarchus is. Aristarchus is one of Paul's traveling companions, along with Luke and probably some others who are on this boat. They would have had to pay their own way to go on this, this cruise. 
right? <laughs> full, a ship full of prisoners. You see in verse 3 an example of that kind of care when they actually got to Sidon, Julius, because he, you know, he had he was treating Paul kindly, he gave him leave to go with his friends so that he could be cared for. What does that look like? Well, he's probably going to go and get some more food for the journey for the trip. He's being, he's being cared for. So this is what's happening here in this, in this trip. So let's look at verse 4. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to a Myra and Lycia, and there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. So they've changed ships. We sailed solely for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus, and as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. And coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Anybody need a map? I need a map. Do we have a map? Can we put a map up on the screen? Okay, can you see a map on the screen? You can see, if you go down to the bottom right-hand corner of this, of this map, that's where the Caesarea, you see that's where the, the ship started. There, the next day they were in Sidon, right? We just read that. And then they, they follow along, this, this, along the lee. What's that? They're close to the shoreline. of the. Why are they close to the shoreline? Because if you get out into the open waters, the wind is a lot stronger. And so they want to stay close to, to the shoreline. So they've made themselves to Myra, and now they've made their Snidus, and they've come underneath Crete, and they've landed now in Fair Havens. You see where we are right in the middle of the map now? That's where we are. We just read the first eight verses just right up to that point. In, in the situation. Okay, let's look at verse 9. Okay, verse 9. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. What's he talking about? What, what's this fast? This fast is the, a reference to the Day of Atonement, which would have taken place either the end of September or at the beginning of October. What's he saying? He's saying it's fall and it's almost winter time. And if anybody is a sailor and I'm looking across the room, I don't see any you would know that in the winter, the winds are a lot worse and things get a lot more dicey on the water. And so that's what he's saying here. The fast was already over. And so Paul says, I advised them in verse 10 saying, sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So what are they trying to do? Well, you go back to your map and you see where they are. They're in Fair Havens, right? Well, they want to make a run for it to Phoenix. You see where Phoenix is? It's just right up there. It's, a, it's actually, on a good day, a four-hour ship ride. On a bad day, an eight-hour ship ride. Why are they going there? Because in, in those days, the Phoenix Harbor was kind of shaped like a, a horseshoe. It was like, it, it was, 
if you got your ship inside there, if there were any winter storms, they would come by. They wouldn't come into the Bay Area. So their intent was to go to Phoenix and keep the ship there for the rest of the winter until the weather got better, and then they could continue with their trip to Rome. That's exactly what's happening. But the majority takes a vote, and the majority wins. They're trying to get to Phoenix. And so here we go. Here we go. Verse 13. Now... When the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. They're on their way. They're moving their way towards Phoenix. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. So they wanted to go north. Right, The south wind is going to push them in that direction, but then all of a sudden a northeaster comes off the land, and what happens? It pushes them out into the middle of the sea. Running under the lee of a small unclad cotter, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis... The Sirtis is, if you look at the map, you see where it says Sirtis Major. They were afraid that they were going to end up all the way down in Africa. And back there, those are very shallow waters. And they were afraid that if they, if they went there, that the ship would be absolutely lost. So they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. And no small tempest lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. This is a hopeless situation. They are lost at sea. They have no way to navigate. You know, back then they didn't have like these cool like Depth finders on the, you know, on the front of the boat, you know, and they could, they didn't have all that. You can tell I'm not a sailor. I have no idea what I'm talking about, right? So you could Google it, just Google it, and you can see all the, all the stuff that they have, they have today that they could tell what's going on underneath the boat. They didn't have any of that. All they had was what? They had the sun and the stars. That's all they had. And the weather is so bad that they can't see either. They don't know what, they don't have a clue where they are. Everyone, Luke, Aristarchus, the soldiers, the sailors, the prisoners, everyone is convinced that there is no chance of survival. They have absolutely given up on hope. Have you ever felt like that? I have, and I'm sure some of you have too. Some of you might even be saying, yeah, I could say, I could say the same thing. There's no small tempest that's lay on us right now. All hope of our being saved is, man, let's just abandon it. Let's jump ship. Sometimes we feel like life is, is hopeless. And so what do you do? What do you do when it feels hopeless, when all hope has been abandoned? Here's point number two. Take heart. 
Acts chapter 27, verses 21 through 25. Go back to the story. Back to the story. Look at verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. They hadn't eaten for a long time. Well, now, now, if you jump down to verse 33, you'll realize that they actually do have food. It's not because they don't have food. They actually have food. The reason why they haven't eaten is because this storm is so large and is so pervasive. It's up and out. And the last thing you want to do when you're in the middle of the ocean and your boat is getting flipped all over the place is eat something. And so they haven't eaten for a long time. They've been tossed in the waves. They have no appetite to eat. And Paul stands up and gives this great little speech to them. He's meeting together them, and Paul addresses them. He says, you should have listened to me. Some of you might say, well, he didn't take the Dale Carnegie class on how to win friends and influence people. That's for sure. But actually what he's doing here is he's just establishing his credibility. And this is what he says. Look at what he says in verse 22. Yet now I urge you to take heart. Think about this. Everybody on the boat has lost any semblance of hope. And the Apostle Paul stands up in the middle of a storm and says, take heart. You know what that word means? It means cheer up. Be encouraged. How would you have responded to any guy that would have stood up in the midst of a storm like that and said, hey, everybody, let's just cheer up. Let's be encouraged. The word is used in James chapter 5, verse 13, where it's translated, is anyone cheerful? Make sure he praises the Lord. They are lost at sea. They're being pounded by the storm. And the apostle Paul says, take heart, cheer up, be encouraged. You see, when you're in crisis... You need confidence. When you're in crisis, you need confidence, confidence in God. And God, through the apostle Paul, is about to give them a boatload of confidence. He says, I urge you to take heart. This is not a pep talk. This is not like the coach who says to his team that's just been annihilated in the first half of the football game and comes in at halftime and says, hey, guys, you know what, it's, you know, it looks bad out there, but let's just go back out there and give it our best effort. Now, it's not a pep talk. He's, he's not ignoring reality. He's not trying to say, hey, it's not really that bad. No, it's bad. It's really bad. The situation they're in is, is really, really bad. And so the Apostle Paul isn't trying to say, hey, let's ignore reality. I mean, Paul, if anyone knows what it's like to go through a shipwreck, he actually says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, that three times he was shipwrecked. This is one of them. There were two other times. I would think, man, if this was, let's hope this was the first time, because after the first time, I wouldn't have got back on the boat the second time. He's not trying to, he's not trying to say to them, like, listen, like, like just ignore, it's okay, it's going to be okay. No, he's giving a word from the Lord to them, a declaration of truth. Take heart, cheer up, be encouraged. How in the world is the Apostle Paul able to say this? How is he able to say, take heart? What's the difference from his perspective and everyone else's perspective on the ship, including Luke and Aristarchus? 
What's the difference between hope and hopelessness? Look at verse 22 again. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. The difference between hope and hopelessness is that faith in God. That's the difference. Faith in who God is. Right? He, he said an angel of the God, an angel of God had uh, to whom I belong and to whom I worship. In other words, what he's saying to the rest of these men is that my God has come through. All of these men on the boat, they would, have been, uh, they would have all worshipped something. Back then, they would have all been worshipping something. They were polytheistic worshippers of all these different things. And, God is, and Paul is saying, listen, a messenger from my God came to me and gave me a message. Right? I, I have faith in who, in who my God is. How about you? Do you have, he's saying to them, like almost almost subtly saying to them, do you, what, who do you have your faith in? This is who I've placed my faith in. This is what my God is like. He has shown up. He showed up. Faith in what God has done. I love, I love this one. You have the gospel of Jesus Christ is so awesome. There, there, are, there are so, I mean, there are no words to describe how awesome Faith, the, the gift of faith to us in Jesus Christ is. When we are in Christ, we have this faith in Jesus Christ. It changes everything. By grace, through faith, our sin is taken away. We move into a new relationship with Christ, the Spirit, the Father. Is that, captured? is that not captured in the words of the Apostle Paul, how he describes here? He has this faith in who God is. He says, in the God whom I belong to, whom I belong. In other words, I, I, belong, I, I belong. He's got faith in his God. because Why does he have faith in his God? Because he knows who he is and that he actually belongs to him. That God's going to care for him. He knows that's going to be true. Not only that, but he says, whom I worship. That word for worship is actually the word serve. And so not only has God care, going to care for him, but God has actually called for him and set him apart for a certain kind of ministry, the one whom he serves. And then he talks about this, how he has faith in God's word. Way back in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, God had promised him that he would stand before Caesar. And now this time, God has reminded him again that he will stand before Caesar. Not only that, that, he's, not only that, that he makes this promise to the passengers, the ship will be lost, but there will be no loss of life. Right? Isn't that amazing? So take heart, verse 25, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. Right? Nobody's going to lose their lives. Now, you see, when the situation seems hopeless, we have to take heart. We can actually cheer up. We can actually be encouraged. Why? Because we have faith in God. In fact, when you are in Christ, 
Your perspective should be totally different than everyone else's in the same circumstance. I think about the pandemic, and I think, I think to myself, I'm in Christ. And because I'm in Christ, my perspective on world events should be very different than people who are not in Christ. Why is it that people who are in Christ are acting the same way as people who are not in Christ? That doesn't make sense to me. It wouldn't have made sense to the Apostle Paul. When you're in Christ, you can have a totally different perspective. Actually, you should have a totally different perspective of what's going on in and around you, even in the midst of a pandemic, even in the midst of church strife. We're in Christ. We have faith in God. We have faith in his promises. We have faith in his care. We know who he is. We know who he is. Let's just consider some of these verses. Psalm 24, 8. Think about who God is. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Is that true? Come on, is that true? Or how about Psalm 23, verses 1 through 3, when you think about the care that God has for us. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. There's not, what, you know what the psalmist is saying there? There's nothing that I need. I have the Lord. There's nothing that I have need. I don't need anything else. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. And, and he does that because he calls, he calls us, what does he call us to? For his name's sake. For his name's sake. Isaiah 40 verse 8. We can count on his word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. True? It's true. See, the difference between hope and hopelessness is faith in God. Isaiah 26, verses 3 through 4, captures it well. And he says, you, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. The difference between hope and hopelessness in your life is and always will be faith in God. When all seems hopeless, take heart. And here's point number three, because God keeps his word. Look at verse 25. So take heart, man, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. But we must run aground on some island. It's going to be exactly as I've been told, the Apostle Paul says, He has hope. He has hope. He has this confident, certain expectation. In fact, he has enough faith in God and confidence in God for the entire boat. Did you notice that? Verse 25, take heart, man. He says, so take heart, man, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. He doesn't say to them, I find this very interesting. He doesn't say to them, hey, you, you need to have faith in God. He actually says, no, no, no. Take heart, because I have faith in God. I have confidence in God. He's got enough faith and confidence in God for the entire boat. How about you? Do you have enough faith and confidence for the entire boat? 
Look at what it says in verse 27. Verse 27, he says, um, When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20, 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. There the lifeboat is gone. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Wow. Like that's like no turning back now. They got rid rid of... All of their food. You see, do you see this? Do you see this in the story? God's in control. God has a plan and he's fulfilling his promises. Look at what it says in verse 39. Now, when it was day, they didn't recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach in on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea at the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach, but striking a reef, they Ran the vessel aground, the bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on the planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. God's in control, God has a plan, God fulfills his promises. When the storm hits, when you're in the midst of crisis or chaos, God is in control, he has a plan. And as chaotic as this must have been, I can only imagine how chaotic this must have been, this whole episode. God was still in control. As chaotic as our world might seem right now, God is in control. Church, hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me. As chaotic as your church might feel right now, God is in control. Total control. And he fulfills his promises. Now, the the problem is, is do we actually know what God's promises are for the storms in life, for the trials and the tribulations of life? Um, You know, you say, well, if I had an angel show up like the Apostle Paul did, then maybe I would would know, right? Right? Maybe Maybe I would know. But we have the Word of God and we have the Holy Spirit in us and we have the declared promises of the Lord in the Scripture we know that God fulfills his promise. There's so much that we don't know, right? I don't know a lot about all the trials in life, all the circumstances I have to face in my life. I, I know what God can do. 
and I sometimes I'm not sure what he will do, but I do know that I had this tendency to think I know what he must do, right? I mean, I, I'm, sometimes I'm pretty sure on what the plan needs to be, and I'm more than willing to reveal it to the Lord that this is what it should be. To impose my wants on God's will, to place expectations on God that actually he never promises to meet. I find this story really interesting because in Acts chapter 27, verse 26, after he says, so take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. Then he says this, but we must run aground on some island. And uh, why? Why did it have to be like that? Like, why couldn't have Paul just stood up like Jesus did and said, peace be still, and the storm would have stopped? I mean, wouldn't that have been a little more dramatic and awesome? Like, that's, aren't you thinking? Like, like Jesus with his disciples, when he said, hey, stood up, peace be still, and it was calm. Well, God did it before. Why couldn't he do it again? But, no, but, you know, see, sometimes that's not the way God works. God still gets the glory, but he does it in different ways. So there's so much we don't know, but what we do know is we know that God has declared certain promises and truths about storms, about trials, about tribulations in our lives. Like in John 16, verse 33, where he says, following Christ would actually include suffering. I'm sorry for those who might think that being a Christian means that your life is going to be easy. That's not what Jesus said. He said, actually, in the world you will have tribulation. In Acts 14, 22, he said, you will enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations. We do know that tribulation, distress, does not separate us from the love of Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 35. We know that God is with us in our suffering. He actually sympathizes with us in our suffering. Why? Because Jesus himself suffered. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. We know that God uses trials and he produces to produce character in our lives, like Romans 5, 3, and 4. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Do you know, sometimes God actually uses trials and situations in our life to point out sin in our lives to bring us to repentance. That's sometimes why God, he, he'll use these things. He'll use things, circumstances, to bring us to our knees. Because that's where we need to be. We need to learn how to rejoice in suffering because if we, it, it can produce endurance. And if endurance is in our life, it produces character. And then character produces hope. And in hope, and hope, hope never lets us down, the Apostle Paul says in, the, in Romans. In suffering, we know that God's grace is sufficient because God's power is made perfect in weakness. In our humility, and our dependence... The power of Christ rests on us, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 through 10. That's why he says, when you are weak, that's when you're strong. Why am I strong? Because when I'm fully dependent on the Lord, that's when the Lord is resting on me. It's his power is on me. When you're weak. And the Lord uses all these things in our lives to bring us to the point where we need to be. Those are the promises that God declares, some of them that he declares about sufferings and trials and difficult situations in our lives. The question for us is, do we actually believe that those declared promises are what is best for us?
I, my prayer these days for us is that the Lord would use what's happening in us to make us into the people that he wants us to be. So I promise you three points, right? Three points, one truth. Let's put it all together. Here it is. When all seems hopeless, take heart because God keeps his word. He keeps his word. He keeps his word. He keeps his word. Let's pray together. Father, I just, I, I, I pray that we would humble ourselves underneath the word of God tonight and receive the truths of scripture by your spirit in our hearts so that we can actually take heart and be encouraged because we know that you're in control and you are at work. We know that because you promised that. So Father, teach us how to be dependent on you. Teach us how to humble ourselves before you. God, I pray in my own life, in my own life, as I experience uh, the things that I'm experiencing in my life, I pray for my life and for the lives of my brothers and sisters. If there is sin in my life, that you would point that out to me to bring me to repentance. Bring us to repentance. Father, you would teach us to learn how to, uh, to take heart because we know you're, you're in control and you are at work in the difficulties of life and you are shaping us and you're transforming us. You're, you're doing something that, that we can't see right now, but we know that you're doing a good work among us. God, give us that kind of faith in you, that kind of belief in you. May we hope in God. May we hope in God. I shall again, he says, Psalmist says in Psalm 42, 11, hope in God for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Teach us, Lord, how to be encouraged. Teach us, allow us to let you do the work that you want to do in our lives. Draw us close to you. Draw us close to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.